you will join me now, we will once again return to the first verse of the Bible, which I couldn't complete the last time when I started it. But let's pray. Father, what an awesome God you are, and we praise you in your creating of everything in an instant some time ago. And we praise you for bringing about your will through it to this day, and will do so beyond to the end of this life, this world, and after which we look forward to joining you in heaven for all eternity, we who have believed. Lord, help us to recognize, to see, to understand the depth of what you have for us, even in just the first verse of your word. Give us some sense of that, for even today I cannot exhaust all that there is to be said or could be said in regard to just this much. Help us to see you, understand our relationship with you, understand it in regard to so many of the issues and problems that we face in our world today. This word of yours that you began with is still every bit as applicable and relevant as it was when you first gave it. So help us to see and understand and believe and follow you in all things in Christ through whom we pray. Amen. The opening chapters, not merely the opening verse, the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, being foundational to all that follows in God's Word and in all of life, just these opening chapters tell us a great deal that applies to the hottest, most controversial cultural, social issues of our time today. The question for us, of course, is ever, will we believe and abide by and obey what God has to say? Or will we go our own way on matters of life and death and sexuality and morality? Will we see these things as God has presented them in truth or will we insist on seeing them our own way contrary to Him? We will talk certainly about various of the issues, the subjects that are so um, with us in today's culture as we move on through the text of Genesis. But all of the controversial issues that we will encounter in foundational form as we move through the text all relate, all of them relate to a root assumption, a worldview assumption 
that is addressed right in this very first verse of Scripture. Our modern culture, our world, assumes an evolutionary model or grid or understanding that informs what we think and what we believe and what we do on a whole host of important issues. Evolution is assumed, by and large, to be a fact, and its basic message, I understand there are Christians who believe in evolution or forms of it or elements of it, but the basic message of the, the worldview, the grid, the theory of evolution, which is considered to be a fact, is this. There is no God. Our world, our planet, life on it came about over a vast amount of time. This is the evolutionary model that is pervasive in our world. Came about over a vast amount of time, billions of years, by chance. Evolution is seen as a sufficient explanation in itself for everything that exists. Thus the relevance of the very first verse of the Bible. Many Christians, Christians, who are wrongly convinced that evolution is scientific, proven, true, Many Christians who are convinced of this have accepted much or have accepted at least parts of the evolutionary hypothesis and model. And they seek to make their interpretation of Scripture. We're going to still be looking at the first verse, but you could carry right on through the first and second chapters, at least in, in my thought at this point. They, they seek to make their interpretation of Scripture especially those opening chapters, compatible with, understand it in a way that allows for this assumed model of evolutionary development. Many such Christians will, of course, affirm that God is creator. In fact, most all of these who want to make compatible with evolution will assume that God is creator. So they're not compatible with the, the, the core or basic model of evolution, which says there isn't a God. Everything is explainable by chance evolutionary development. The Christians who believe that God is creator, many of them think that he used evolution or elements of evolutionary theory in his creating, and it all took a long, long time. Millions, indeed billions of years. <clears throat> Modern theories of evolution arose some of this is similar to what I said the first time, but it has to be repeated to get it more points to be made. Modern theories, modern theories, understand evolution, we know, has been around, we have evidence in writings, has been around as long as the ancient Greeks. But modern theories of evolution arose in the late 1800s and really took hold in the 20th century or the 1900s. And as generations have been raised with evolutionary presuppositions, there has been a steady increase 
and this has been true throughout my life. Many of you have seen the same thing. There has been a steady increase, slow and steady increase of meaninglessness, relativity, and purposelessness. This is not where we were if you go back before modern theories of evolution, but as they took hold, these things developed, increased, and have continued to increase, and this has an impact on all of society in a whole variety of ways. The very concept of truth itself was and is still assaulted, and absolute truth, the notion that there is absolute truth, is absolutely denied, which is self-contradictory. We absolutely know that there is no absolute truth. We human beings, according to this model, not the biblical one, decide what is right for ourselves, what is wrong for ourselves. We decide what we are. We see that today most prominently this way. We decide what we are in terms of gender. But in more broad ways, we decide what we will do and what we will be. These are all thought to be our decisions. And we may make individually different decisions. And we mustn't step on each other's individual different decisions because there is no such thing as absolute truth. Absolutely there is not. Evolution fosters and supports this worldview, this model, fosters and supports all of this. If one chooses to believe in God, well, that's okay, but certainly you ought to keep that private, you ought to keep that to yourself, and surely you should not seek to convince or to convert others to such a notion. That is unacceptable. That is forcing your faith on them. Mind you, you're just trying to convince them that they might make a decision, but that is seen as unacceptable. As a result, the culture that once was our culture here in this country, established by our nation's founding fathers so many years ago, who by and large, it must be noted, by and large, not every single one, but the overwhelming majority of our nation's founding fathers were men of strong faith in the God of the Bible, men who believe the Word of God as it is delivered to us. The American culture that they established is in retreat, in serious retreat. You and I know this. And it is being replaced by all manner of what is now considered to be acceptable immorality and evil practices to such an extent that those of us who were born before, say, I don't know, 1970, hardly recognize the culture that we find ourselves living in today. There is so much about modern culture which is thought to be a result of the 1960s. Some of you remember the 1960s. And, and yes, the 1960s had a sort of destructive impact in general on our culture. But that's not the roots of this. 
the roots of this are actually found in this worldview, which is different than the biblical worldview, what I've called the evolutionary worldview, the humanistic worldview, which was pervasive long before the 1960s. The 1960s were an outcropping of that. The, 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 the Creation Museum is absolutely correct. This is the foundational shift where everything changes. Contrary to all of that is God, the one true God who actually exists and who declares to us in Genesis 1 verse 1 that he is the creator of everything that exists and thus there is the corollaries that follow. He doesn't have to say it. Thus there is real meaning and real purpose and real absolute truth rooted in him which is the polar opposite of what our modern culture which is saturated in the false and even mythical assumptions of naturalistic evolution modern man turns away from God and justifies that turning away on the basis of evolutionary assumptions. Genesis 1.1 and the rest of Scripture calls us to all that is good and right and true and fulfilling and meaningful and valuable and it is all found in our Creator God whom we learn in His Word was actually Jesus himself through whom God created. This creator God whom all of this value and meaning is found is also our redeemer God, our savior God. And that is all made clear in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, God's son. So here we begin. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, few weeks ago I preached on this same text said a lot of important things in regard to it but here we come again we start first point I'll make we start worshiping God in effect in Genesis 1 1 and we worship our God as the creator our creator if God can and does create the whole world, the whole universe, he can and he does create new life in redeemed souls, souls that he has redeemed from lostness. And if he has created the world, as he declares in the opening verse of his word, then he is the one who will create the new heavens and the new earth. And thus, at a very root level, a basic level, we worship, we honor, we glorify Him. It starts with Him as Creator and then all else that flows forth beyond that. Now as we consider this God, or as we consider the creation, we say by this God, evolutionists say not by this God, there are only really four options for the origin of this universe. First option, the universe is an illusion. 
It doesn't exist. I know you think it does, but it, it doesn't exist. It's a figment of your imagination. Second option, the universe, this is perhaps the more popular one, or the most popular one, is what we might call, no, no, this isn't, this is not the most popular. The universe is, second option, self-created. Doesn't have a God, doesn't need a God, there is no God who has laws and standards. The universe itself is self-created. It's option number two. Option number three, the universe is self-existent. It's not self-created, it is eternal meaning the universe has always been here. That's probably the most popular option believed today. The universe, no, no God necessary. The universe has always been here and everything has evolved from the stuff of the universe. Fourth option, the universe was created by a being that is self-existent. We would say that's the God of the scriptures. So, either the universe doesn't exist, or the universe created itself, or the universe has always existed, or somebody, someone, presumably God, created it. So let's start with the first option, to run through these quickly this morning. Is the universe an illusion? If it is what we might call a false illusion, then it's not an illusion. If it is, however, a true illusion, it really is. The universe doesn't exist. It's simply an illusion that we have, or at least that I have, because the rest of you are part of my illusion. Be true for any of you. If it's a true illusion, then someone or something must exist to have the illusion. And if someone or something must exist to have the illusion, then everything is not an illusion. I know I said that quickly, but this is the self-contradictory explanation. So then we move to the next. Is the universe self-created? Self-creation requires the existence of something to do the creating before it exists. You can't create yourself before you exist to create yourself. If that's hard to follow, let's talk afterward. Self-creation, therefore, requires something to be before it is, which is ridiculous. So, third option. Has the universe always existed? This is virtually where all evolutionists end up who don't believe in any god. There are, there are certain Christians or... Christian-like folks who believe there is a God and evolution was his method, theistic evolutionists, or there was certainly a lot of time involved. You have progressive creationists, etc. But for most, the theory of evolution, there is no God. The universe has always existed. Is that true? Well, we observe so much in the universe that has clearly not always existed, and everything in the universe is changing and it is all running down or headed toward heat death or what we might call useless energy. So that theory, I'll say more about that in a little bit, but that theory doesn't work so well either. 
So we want to say, consistent with what we read in the revealed Word of God, that a self-existent, eternal being created the universe. God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But mankind, all of mankind collectively, knowing about this God... You say, well, there's a lot of people that don't, they don't believe there is a God. I didn't say that they believe in this God. I said, mankind, knowing about this God, suppresses the truth about this God in unrighteousness, Romans 1, verses 18 to 25. Science, on the idea that there is a God who's done this, just as Genesis 1, 1 says, Science, or science so-called, the evolutionary science, which I would suggest to you isn't true science. Science, in that sense, does not interpret Genesis. We might even say it more broadly. Science is not, the, of, of any sort, is not the ultimate interpreter of Genesis. The Word of God does not bow to science as the ultimate authority. As Jesus said, your word is truth. John 17, verse 17. The New Testament, which is the word of God in the New Testament, comments authoritatively on Genesis, affirming, does the New Testament, the creation by God, the fall, the flood, the creation of man, man created in God's image, and the specific details even of the creation of Adam and Eve. This is all affirmed in God's Word in the New Testament, which provides commentary on what we read about as we read these opening chapters of the Scriptures. God is eternal, meaning God has neither a beginning nor an ending. He is utterly self-sufficient, he needs nothing beyond himself. So, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything that exists, animate, living, or inanimate, non-living, comes from God and is dependent on God. He created us to share his love with us, a love that we can, by his enablement, respond to. We can respond to him willingly. In other words, we can choose, make choices in response to him or not. Being created as we are in his image. We'll see that as we get to that part of the opening of Genesis. But that reality informs us that we are able in his image to make choices. If Genesis 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2, is not truth, is not correct, and I alluded to this last time, why would we believe that the rest of the Bible is correct? Why would we believe anything in the rest of the Bible if the opening verse itself is false in some way? If God is not the creator as he says that he is, and if he did not create as he says he did, 
why would we believe the Bible when God says that he is the Redeemer or that he is the Savior? Genesis and especially the account of the creation and the fall is foundational to everything. If these things aren't so in real truth, in real historical truth, then the rest of it falls apart and there's no reason to believe the rest of it. If we exist by chance, the naturalistic evolutionary model, if we are nothing but the product of an evolutionary development, and there is no God who is a moral lawgiver and judge, then there will be no final judgment. Then there is no absolute right and wrong. Then there is no human dignity. Then there is no real consequential difference between a man or a woman and a pest, a bug. And then, if, if this is all not so, and God is not there, and he did not do this, then atheistic communism, which has overseen the murder of millions and millions of people, vastly more than Hitler ever slaughtered, then atheistic communism is not in any way provably worse than any other human system if there is no God and there is no absolute truth because there is no God. And then how we treat one another does not actually matter. We think it matters. We think it matters a great deal. But it does not actually matter if there is no God and everything has come about by chance. Evolution is... It is attractive. It is attractive to so many, not because it would simply do away with Genesis or Scripture. It is attractive to so many, and evolutionists are convinced that it's true and they've already convinced the great majority of our world and our culture that it is true they've already convinced even most of the Christian church that it is at least somewhat true if not fairly fully true and that scripture does not contain a reliable truthful historical account Evolution is attractive to many, not because, again, it does away with Genesis 1-1 or 1-1 and following. It is attractive to many because what it does away with that matters to most who accept it is accountability. Accountability. Evolutionists at their core are not really concerned to do away even with God as creator. Oh, they don't think that that's necessary to believe in, but if you want to, yeah, 
They're not really primarily even concerned to do away with God as creator. What they want to do away with above all else is God as judge. Man wants to do what man wants to sinfully do without guilt and without consequences. So we have two basic worldviews between which you must choose. The materialistic, naturalistic, evolutionary worldview says that ultimate reality is impersonal matter or energy and no God exists. The Christian or biblical view says ultimate reality is infinite, personal, living, loving God. The materialistic view says that the universe was created by chance without any loving purpose and there is no absolute meaning. The biblical worldview says the universe was lovingly created by God for a specific purpose and there is meaning in and through this God Materialism says man just comes from impersonal time and chance and matter. It's always been there and somehow man has evolved impersonally through all of that. And no one has any value or meaning or dignity other than that which is subjectively derived and this subjective value is only temporary. The biblical view says that man was created in God's image and is loved by God. And all human beings, therefore, have eternal value, which is not derived from man himself, but from God who created man and gives to man transcendent, eternal value. Materialism if it even affirms morality, and some materialists certainly do, says that morality is relative. Because every individual person defines his or her own morality. Based on nothing more than personal interests and personal views, which are not pervasive, they're not held by all, and they're temporary. The biblical view says that morality is defined by God, it is absolute, it is unchanging, because it is based on God's holy, unchanging character seen in His inerrant Word. The materialistic view brings only eternal annihilation eventually. The biblical view says the afterlife involves either eternal life with God or eternal separation from Him. These things matter immensely. How we view these things matter immensely and that is played out in how culture goes on and develops, exists and acts and differences here at the foundational level inform and change how life goes in all manner of ways as a result. Francis Schaeffer, 
Francis Schaeffer was an apologist uh, of the Christian faith many years ago and had a, a huge influence on me after I first became a Christian through the writing of many books. Francis Schaeffer said, if I had just one hour to spend with a person who does not know the Lord, is not a believer, is not born again, if I had just one hour to spend with a person who does not know the Lord, uh, get this, what he said, I would use the first 55 minutes talking about man being created in the image of God, and I would spend the last five minutes on the gospel that could restore man to that original intended image. Our faith does not begin... Now, when I say this, you're going to say, well, mine did. Understanding as a whole, our faith doesn't really begin with accepting Christ as Savior. It begins with Genesis 1.1. God, there is a God who created everything, the heavens and the earth. He created it for a purpose and a destiny which he himself has determined. If we don't take the creation in Genesis seriously in regard to the real world and all that's involved, how can we take Scripture seriously when it speaks about that real world in the rest of the 66 books? If Genesis 1-1 is seen as allegorical or mythical or mystical, as many see it, then there is a strong tendency to view the world in which we live as disconnected from real truth reality. If we say that what God tells us about in his creation of material reality, if we say that's not really accurate, that's not really true, that's not really historical, what he says about the material reality, Genesis 1 and 2, then we are assaulting what God tells us is true and reliable on every subject. My own conversion to Christ was, as many of you know, very wrapped up with this whole business of creation by God. I was convinced that evolution explained everything and that no belief in God was necessary. When I came to see the truth of the opening chapters of Genesis and the impossibility of the evolution model, I then read straight through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and before I finished it, I believed in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I have never in my Christian life as a result, well, related to this, I have never been a fan of what is your favorite Bible verse? Why? Because all of God's Word is so vitally important and all of God's word is true and all of God's word is useful but if I were pressed to declare a favorite verse of scripture you just must I, I think it would be Genesis 1 1 in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth because on that everything else rests everything else that we believe in depends upon that 
If you really believe in Genesis 1 and verse 1, it's easy to believe everything else that Scripture says. It's easy to believe everything else that Scripture says. If there really is a God, if there really is a God mighty enough to create this world from nothing, then everything else that the Bible talks about God doing is mere child's play by comparison. I find it incredible that there are people who refuse to believe in specific miracles in the Bible, like the parting of the Red Sea, or Jesus stilling a storm, or walking on water, or rising from the dead. And yet they will believe, many people will believe, that there was a beginning and there's some God or force that created the world to begin with, that started the world to begin with. Creating the universe itself is profoundly more astounding than so many other lesser miracles that the Bible records that follow. So what should our response be to Genesis 1-1? To the fact of God's creating us and our world. What should our response be? Wonder? Amazement? Praise? Thanksgiving? Revelation 4.11, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. That's what follows from Genesis 1.1, if you believe it. Now, let's say other things. What do we learn about God from this very first verse? He is self-existent. I've said that, but he is self-existent. The ultimate cause, that means. He is the ultimate cause upon which all else, all that which was created, depends Everything other than God, everything other than God is subordinate, dependent, created. We either live life as God designed us in God's way, through faith in God, depending on God, or we meet Him in judgment. We also learn that God is the only God with whom we have to do. We are like, and you probably have heard this, we are like the proverbial man climbing up a steep mountain who begins to slip. He falls back toward a cliff edge which will plunge him thousands of feet down to his certain death. Just as he is about to go over that edge, he reaches out and grabs a small branch which stops his progress temporarily. But he realizes very quickly that this won't stop it permanently as the branch begins to pull and he realizes he can't do anything to save himself from going over the cliff. He's not a particularly religious person. But this is obviously the time to get religion. So looking up to heaven, he calls out, Is there anyone up there who can help me? He didn't really expect an answer. He's not a religious 
person. So he is surprised when a deep voice says, yes, I am here and I can help you. But first you are going to have to trust me, depend on me, let go of the branch. He pauses, he thinks, he looks up again. Is there anyone else up there who can help me? <laughs> there is no one else. Only God willing to save us, but we must submit to him as Lord, trust in him as Savior alone. God, having created the world, owns it. This is another thing we know inherently from just Genesis 1.1. He created it all. He owns it. Psalm 95, verses 1 to 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods in whose hand are the depth of the earth, the peaks of the mountains, and are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. He created it all. He owns it all. Any part of his created order, and we are all a part of his created order. God owns us, and he is therefore sovereign over us, and we owe him allegiance, we owe him obedience, we owe him submission, and so much else. What else do we learn from Genesis 1-1 about God? I think we can see that as the only source who is before all things, he again is self-sufficient. He owes us nothing. He owes us no answers. And yet he gives us a great deal. He gives us an enormous amount in his word. And he tells us so much. He is eternal and he is in control. Concerning God, Genesis 1-1 therefore refutes atheism. The universe was created by God. Pantheism. It is refuted in Genesis 1.1. God is not everything. He does not equal his creation. He did not thus create himself. He is transcendent. He is different from his creation. Genesis 1.1 refutes polytheism. There is only one God. And it refutes dualism. Dualism is the belief that good and evil are eternally coexistent. God was alone when he created. God is good only, and he is perfectly good. Beings who have become evil, some angels, human beings, beings who have become evil were all created good by God. Genesis 1 run refutes the finite God view. Views like open theism and process theology. God created the universe and he is not limited by anything in the universe that he created. He is not even limited, open theism, by the future because he created time itself. Genesis 1-1 denies materialism or naturalism matter energy nature all had a beginning none of these matter energy nature none of these is ultimate reality God is ultimate reality 
This first verse refutes humanism. Man, the highest living creature, is not ultimate reality. God is. Genesis 1.1 denies Unitarianism. You might think, that's kind of an obscure one to bring up. It denies Unitarianism, which is the idea that God is an absolute unity. And this is the thinking. Now you'll, you'll see it's more prevalent than you thought. This is the thinking of, say, Islam. This is the thinking of modern Judaism. This is the thinking of the Jehovah's Witnesses doctrine. It's certainly the thinking of classical Unitarianism, which cropped up in early America. God, in Genesis 1-1, is identified as Elohim. Elohim is a plural noun with a singular verb. In the beginning, God, plural noun, created, singular verb, the heavens and the earth. Revealing does this term Elohim that God is a plural being. He is not merely a singular being. The Godhead is not singular. It is plural. It has internal relationship. This is why love is so important to our God. From the very existence forever, he has been a being that exhibits love internally in more than one person, one God. Genesis 1-1 refutes, of course, evolutionism because God created all things. So is it any wonder that the creation account in Scripture is so roundly attacked? If this can be changed, upset, reinterpreted, everything changes, and the results play out. 1800s, it starts in modern thinking. 1900s, it gains a lot of steam. 2000s, the results are dramatic. Now, critics point out that the Bible just begins with God. It assumes God's existence. It makes no attempt, apparently, to prove God's existence. That is, that in fact, there is a God. Some Christians reply, well, of course, it doesn't seek to prove that there is a God because you cannot prove God. You must accept God by faith. You don't need to prove that God exists because only a fool denies him. Psalm 14 and verse 1. Okay, I'm in much agreement with, with that. But let me suggest to you that the Bible gives us the greatest proof for the existence of God, and it is found right here in the very first verse of Scripture. How can anyone look at this world, even in its fallen, corrupted state, and not admit there must be a God. Indeed, Romans 1, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Without excuse for what? For not believing in him. Psalm 19, verses 1 to 4, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, 
and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. Many wonder, why did God create? Why, why did God create? Did he create because he needed to have someone to love and to love him? No. He didn't have to have that. Did he create because he was lonely? He's a plural being. No. He didn't have to have that. Did he create because he needed someone to glorify him? We ought to glorify him, but no. That's not why he created. Does God need us? No. He didn't have to create us. He wants us. He wants us to worship him, but he doesn't have to have us worship him. God chose to create. You ready for this? Because he wanted to. And he wanted, apparently, to share his love. He didn't have to, but he wanted to. We have value not because of what we can do for God. There are a lot of people who think that their obedience to what God says is doing something that helps God out. We have value not because of what we can do for God, but because of what God chose to give us. We have the value He chose to give us. Colossians 1, verse 16 and following. Everything created was created by Jesus and for Jesus for His good pleasure. Revelation 4, verse 11. God created all things because it was His will to do so, and He created us, certainly, because He desired to redeem a people for Himself. The first word of the Bible. We didn't discuss this last time. The first word of the Bible is Bereshith. This is Hebrew. It means in the beginning. That's three little words for us, but it's one word. The first word of the Bible, Bereshith, points to an absolute beginning of everything except God himself. The beginning of the universe. The beginning of space. The beginning of time. Convinced that science has proved evolution and old age, some have translated this first verse this first word of this first verse in the Bible as following. When God began creating, or in the beginning when God created, or in the beginning of creation when God made heaven and earth. But all of these turn Genesis 1-1, the very first verse, as well, by the way, as verses 2 and 3, into dependent clauses. Now, I know this is grammar that translation makes them dependent clauses, meaning that verse 3 becomes the main clause, which would be very odd 
for biblical Hebrew, wherein the main noun and verb normally would come much sooner, and we would especially expect the main noun and verb to come in the opening verse, not in the third verse. It's also clear that Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2 do not, as some have thought, form a heading or a summary statement referring to the whole week of creation. Verse 1 is a main clause and has been taken that way in accord with lexical, grammatical, syntactical realities consistent with all orthodox, historical translations down through history. In verses 1 and 2, God is telling us that he created the essence or the substance of the world and the universe. He will go on to form and fashion it over the six creation days of which the first two verses are the beginning of the first day. Verses 1 and 2 most naturally fit as part of first of the first creation day and its activities not as a separate heading unto themselves further if creation began if they're a heading and creation began in verse 3 with the creation of light then the organizing of the existing material the question of the origin of that material would be mysterious because it's just a heading and we just told God created light and the existing material of the universe would then be mysterious. If verse 1 is only a heading and not an actual statement of what God created first. Now I mentioned in my last sermon the word created, bara, points to a creation from nothing in verse 1 or creation what has been called ex nihilo. It's confirmed is this type of creating in Romans 4 verse 17 Hebrews 11 and verse 3 the universe has not existed forever God created it he created the heavens and the earth with that phrase God created the heavens and the earth the ancient Hebrews were describing the whole universe and all that it contains heavens is a concept of what we mean today by perhaps the word space. And Earth refers to our planet or the basic materials which make our planet up, which were still without form, verse 2. Now, this isn't as important as the Word of God itself and what the Word of God itself tells us. But contrary to evolutionary claims, is there scientific evidence for an absolute beginning. The first law of thermodynamics dynamics, indicates that natural processes can neither create nor destroy mass energy. Mass energy interchange can occur according to E equals mc squared. I've got time to go through all the details. But the total mass energy remains the same. There can be an interchange, but the total remains the same. By all observations, mass energy is neither being created or destroyed. It changes, 
but more of it is not coming into existence or going out of existence by any natural process. The second law of thermodynamics states that the amount of energy available for work or entropy, this amount, is increasing to a maximum. If the total amount of mass energy is limited, which is surely indicated by the evidence of an ever-expanding universe, and the amount of usable energy is decreasing by all measurements, then the universe cannot have existed forever. Otherwise, it would already have exist, exhausted rather, all usable energy and arrived at what many have called heat death. All radioactive atoms would have decayed. Every part of the universe would be the same temperature and no further work would be possible. The obvious corollary is that the universe began a finite time ago with a lot of usable energy and it's now, we would say, post-fall running down. Also, Einstein's general relative, relativity, which has much experimental support, shows that time is linked to matter and space, so time itself would have begun along with matter and space. An insight first pointed out by Augustine in the fourth century. God is creator of the whole universe and also the creator of time. He is not limited by the time dimension that he created, thus he has no beginning in time. He is eternal, he is beyond time, he is the one who is high and lifted up and inhabiting eternity, and his name is holy, Isaiah 57 verse 15. So may he be praised by and in and for all that he has created. May his name be hallowed by all creation and all living creatures. And now, and I know we're running late, we are ready, which we will do next time, to move on from the opening verse of his awesome, holy, and inerrant word. Let's pray. If we have grasped something, Lord, of this critical opening statement, then much that follows will be easy enough to understand, grasp, and move forward with. But here we must be clear about what it is that you are saying, what it is that this means, and how this applies. I pray we have gotten something of that and can now move forward next time. Thank you for all of it. Thank you for our relationship that we can have with you through Christ your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you will rise. I realize that some of this is technical, some of this is perhaps beyond your immediate understanding, but these things matter to life as a whole to our understanding of this world, our understanding of ourselves, and what our purposes and goals are. Depart to reflect further on that, and we will carry on further in the text as you return. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.